The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? Facial recognition. It's the up-and-coming technology that's already become almost part and parcel of our Western modern life. You can use it to open your phone, you can use it to access your online banking, and you might have even noticed that your photo album on your phone is capable of recognizing your face and distinguishing it from that of your loved ones by categorizing them through your past pictures. But what does a technology like this become when it's implemented in China? Already we are seeing signs of overuse, but also we are seeing signs of a backlash, a civil backlash happening in the courts, in social media, and in public opinion at large against facial recognition. So that's the topic of this episode of Chinese Whispers, and with me to discuss are Jeffrey Ding, he's a DPhil researcher in AI at the University of Oxford, together with Jeremy Dolm, senior research scholar in law and senior fellow at the Paul Tai China Centre at Yale Law School, who also runs the blog China Law Translate, which, well, translates Chinese law into English. So welcome, Jeremy and Jeff. Jeff, maybe you can start by painting a picture of how your average Chinese citizen comes into contact with facial recognition in their everyday lives. Yeah, so from a technical landscape, the technology has just exploded in terms of the capabilities. So getting from 90% to 99% accuracy is not just a quantitative leap, it's a qualitative leap in terms of being able to have really accurate and precise facial recognition. In terms of where people in China would run into the tech, it starts with different applications, right? So there's been a review by a think tank under, I think, the Beijing News that evaluated 67 different apps, very popular apps that all support facial recognition. Uh, and then you also run into it in different public places. So recently there's been some controversy over facial recognition to enforce um, that only people who live in the neighborhood can get into residences or facial recognition in metro stations and public transportation. Also, there's been facial recognition supported cameras installed in real estate offices, for example, to identify people as they come in. And maybe that affects the commissioning agencies and the housing prices that those customers will eventually get. You're starting to see this technology become more and more ubiquitous. What's the point of all of this facial recognition? And do they have different purposes for the people putting them in place? Or is it for government surveillance? That is definitely one motivating factor. Another motivating factor is just ensuring security for the company side. So being able to accurately authenticate and identify people. So from that perspective, it's more of just facial recognition as a replacement for passwords, right? So there's mm. there's all these different types of applications. And of course, underlying it all is being able to build a more granular data profile of their customers. 
to then more precisely target them. Of course, the government also has different incentives with respect to surveillance. Uh, so you're seeing two different streams of development, but in some cases they align because uh, the government has to rely on companies to conduct the surveillance and build the technical infrastructure for the surveillance. Now, Jeff, there's this idea in the West, and I think I've certainly been guilty of it, of thinking that the Chinese are generally leaning more towards security rather than liberty when it comes to these questions over trading privacy um, and biometric data. But do you think that is still accurate to talk about in the age of facial recognition? Yeah, so I think it's hard to say because... There's different definition of privacy and different contexts. Uh, we can rely on maybe like cross-national comparisons of surveys. Uh, so in recent years, actually Chinese think tanks, Chinese research labs have surveyed people about their attitudes towards facial recognition and AI and how that could have like convenience to privacy trade-offs. So for example, in this recent one by Beijing News Think Tank, seven they surveyed 1,515 people about their attitudes towards facial recognition. It's not a nationally representative sample. 80% of the people had like a bachelor's degree or above. And uh, 75% of these respondents said they were worried about facial recognition. Um, 55.5% of respondents said, quote, if there's another method, I definitely will not choose facial recognition. And so that's based on my translation that I do for uh, the China AI newsletter that I run. So you're seeing that they're actually the majority of the respondents from this survey actually would prefer other methods. Yeah, 87% of respondents in that survey oppose the use of facial recognition in public places for business. So that would be the example of real estate companies or, yeah, shopping malls are using facial recognition. They would be opposed to those uh, uses. Mm. And Jeremy, let's talk about the law part of all of this. To start with, there's been a bit of a kerfuffle in the courts uh, over a few different instances. But one particular instance is this lawyer in Hangzhou who took the zoo that he was going to to court because they had implemented a facial recognition scheme for customers. Can you tell us about that case? Uh, yeah, this is a law professor who was being a bit of a legal activist. Uh, he was intentionally drawing attention to issues of privacy with facial recognition. Uh, he is an expert in personal privacy protections, and he was an annual member to this private zoo, a safari park. A side note, this safari park has recently been in the news again for having three leopards escape. Um, <laughs> but he, he had agreed in his annual membership to using his fingerprints as his method of identification to show that he was the person with an annual membership. And they changed it without consulting him to using facial recognition. And he uh, objected to this and thought that abiding by the law, they should use the least intrusive means necessary to verify his identity and that it should be consent driven and that notice should be given to him with the right to refuse. He sued, like you say, went to court and the courts found that based on a lack of consent, uh, there was a sort of a, a terms of service uh, violation, a contractual violation and the, demanded that his uh, data be deleted. And that's been upheld in, in the second trial on the same matter. The professor was, I think, hoping to get to the core issues of when you, one can consider that to be a reasonable and necessary use of facial recognition, not just the contract dispute, but the case uh, really rotated around the contractual issues thus far. 
there is an appeal coming still. Yes, he appealed once already and the, the court held up the initial ruling, but now he's going to appeal again, we're hearing. But do you think that this sort of lawsuit even matters, Jeremy? I mean, I think people listening might be thinking, well, what is the function of the law in a authoritarian state like China? Is it not just the CCP doing whatever it likes? You know, what is the point of the law in China? It's such a strange thing how often I have to answer a question like this. Um, I, you know, China, we, we certainly have reasonable misgivings about saying there's rule of law in China. And by that, I mean that everyone is equal before the law, uh, has equal access to the law, including, you know, the party being held accountable, the government being held accountable to the law. But to say that there isn't law or that the law is just whatever the party wants just doesn't make much sense. Uh, An enormous amount of financial and intellectual resources are put into legal reforms and drafting these systems. And, you know, this is part of the old trope is that the party just wants to maintain its stability, maintain its position as the ruling class. Well, the best way that it does that is through legitimacy by having a public that's happy with the service and the government that it's given. So the law tends to be responsive in some regard, not obviously in the same way that a democracy is with its elections, but they are trying to satisfy the needs of the people. And there have been concerns about privacy. Uh, That's why this whole new regulatory regime is coming out. And the amount of interest that lawsuits like Wobings have generated shows how much interest there is in this issue. This case was really focused on in in the public and was allowed to be presented in media and online and debated. If we want to say that law in China is is nothing but what the party wants, you know, we can learn a lot about what the party wants then. And even if you think that law there is nothing but a show in China, well, we should be considering who that show is for and what the goals of that show are. And here I would say that the goal of the show is to satisfy a public need. And again, we can get back to that distinction between government use of technology for surveillance and corporate. And all of the regulatory regime now is aimed at disputes between citizens, including corporate citizens and other organizations and other citizens. Mm. There's a separate set of rules for the government's use of these technologies. There's a lot more trust of the government in doing this. And part of it maybe is resignation. There's not a whole lot you can do about it. But really, you know, speaking as a U.S. trained lawyer, our legal system is based around limiting government power. And, and you know, that, that's fundamental to our legal DNA. A lot of countries aren't quite that way. Uh, and so, so we've allowed our corporations to expand their surveillance and use of algorithms and new information technology without much regulation while having more litigation about government use of data. In China, it's going the other way. Well, so what if Guobing had taken his lawsuit against the government then because it was the government taking his biometric data? Would the law still matter at that point? It would be a lot harder of a lawsuit. There are means of challenging the government. They call it administrative litigation, where you can challenge the administrative acts of government agencies. But as in many countries, it's a lot harder to do it. And basically, all of the legal regime has exceptions for lawful performance of government functions, uh, which, of course, will be defined by the government. I'm primarily a scholar of criminal procedure. And certainly, once a criminal investigation has been opened, the police have access to almost all your data if they want it. 
Now they're expected to keep it confidential and only use it for those purposes, but it's very much a black box and you won't be able to know what's going on there. Whereas with corporations, Mm -hmm. because it's between two more equal parties, the government might intervene on behalf of the consumer. And we saw that earlier this year with the government introducing a new civil code, which is meant to strengthen regulations surrounding uh, facial recognition. And at the moment, there's also a public consultation for the country's first national standards when it comes to facial recognition. Jeremy, do you expect these things to go anywhere? Is it just going to be limiting private usage of facial recognition rather than getting the political usage dragged in there as well? What, What are we to make of these seeming reforms? So as I say, you know, I think legitimacy and responding to consumer concerns is a big part of it. And I think that these will establish new norms in in the use of new technologies, including facial recognition. We have a draft personal information protection law coming out as well. The standards that you mentioned are available for public comment now, but are not going to be mandatory. What they will do will is to create a new atmosphere and understanding of privacy in terms of facial recognition. They include things like opting for less invasive alternatives whenever possible, not using facial recognition on minors, storing data locally in China um, so that it's not being transported across borders. One good one is you know, to show that people are thinking about these issues is to not use facial recognition for predictive aspects, but just for identification. You're not supposed to try and assess what kind of a person this is. You're just supposed to use it for identification. So these are about corporations and about individuals using these technologies on each other, not about the government, but it will shape people's understanding of their own rights to privacy and their own right to know when these technologies are being used. And that will have some, you know, those expectations will have some overlap into government versus citizens. Mm. And Jeff, is, I mean, two questions, really. Firstly, is that kind of predictive facial recognition possible? How does that work? So you're literally saying by looking at someone's face, you can guess what they do through tech. I mean, explain that in just a sec if you can. And secondly, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the government's interest in developing AI in general, whether it's for tech domination globally, or whether it's for surveillance, is the government interested in this technology taking off? Yeah, so that's a, those are two really, really loaded questions. So, so first on, on the predictive benefits of facial recognition, uh, there's a couple of things you could try to derive from facial data. Uh, so one thing that's a lot of these applications are actually quite controversial. So already some people are testing using facial data, facial expressions uh, to derive emotional data and predict someone's emotional state. So we've seen some of these applications in Chinese classrooms already, and there's been some backlash to these applications as well, where there's collection of students' facial data and using that to see if they're paying attention or if they're engaged in different types of emotional uh, states. And then, of course, the science on this is not clear. And and I would say the weight of scientific evidence says it's actually not possible to do this. So sometimes I think these applications, um, these more predictive applications, go back to what Jeremy was saying in that we see this new high-tech, sexy technology and want to kind of use it for everything, even when it's not been proven yet. I, I do think, mm. speaking to your second question, the, the broader goals of AI, the reason why people are so keen to 
uh, apply facial recognition to all these different uses, it's because AI is viewed as this general purpose technology, this, this next GPT. Economists have studied general purpose technologies like electricity in the past, and they've been associated with major upsurges in productivity growth. American electrification in the late 19th century led to one of the biggest waves of productivity growth in the U.S. economy in the 1920s, a couple decades later. And Chinese policymakers, they've explicitly made these comparisons of AI leading the way for the fourth industrial revolution and potentially uh, this new wave of productivity growth and for China to be able to sustain its economic growth. Going back to what Jeremy was saying about performance legitimacy, and one of the biggest components of that is being able to maintain high rates of economic growth. So as China's demographic dividend fades, what will sustain growth in the future is productivity growth. So they see AI and making all these different processes more efficient, not just facial recognition, but natural language processing, computer vision for identifying defects on production lines, and all these sort of general purpose applications of AI as being a potential fuel for that next wave of productivity growth. Jeremy, in the West, we hear a lot about the social credit scheme. And I can imagine that has already come to mind for some listeners, which is that, you know, this supposed black mirror score that tells the government or the companies how reliable as a person you are based on all sorts of inputs from your private and professional lives. And one part of that is using facial recognition. For example, in Shenzhen, there was a pilot scheme where jaywalkers crossing the street had their faces recognized and their, their identities beamed across the street on a billboard in a sort of public shaming activity. Is it being used in the social credit scheme, Jeremy? Uh, not terribly. The social credit system is a greatly misunderstood phenomenon, as I've spent far too much of my time trying to explain over the last several years. I often joke that I wish it had been named, instead of social credit, the system on the collection and use of administrative law enforcement data. Um, <laughs> Because that's what it really is. The, the, the social credit system overwhelmingly relies on what they call public credit information. And that's information generated by regulatory agencies. So that's things like when you're given an administrative punishment, like if you had a health code violation in your restaurant, things like permits and licenses, administrative decisions. And this is the data. So it's more of a searchable, identifiable criminal record database administrative punishment database here than it is some holistic algorithmic measure. I think, you know, very much with social credit, we've projected our own anxieties about personal information collection and algorithmic processing onto China. The use of Black Mirror sort of shows that, you know, science fiction we often use as a way of exploring the danger of emerging technologies. And I think that we've used China in this case by inventing the system out there. There was a lot of bad reporting early on. But, you know, most of what social credit is about, like I said, is based on this public credit information, which is formally created legal, legally based opinions. And most of the consequences of social credit are related to things like uh, higher scrutiny and regulation of your industry. So it's mainly aimed at corporations. I I'd love to hear what Jeff has to say about the uh, Shenzhen facial recognition. I did do a little looking into it at one point um, because public shaming is something that is real. Um, but, but what I found at the time, and it may have evolved, was that the technology was not really as good as was being promoted. A lot of the desire of the government with surveillance, and, and I should say, 
our notion of social credit may be grossly off. It might be really wrong, but surveillance in China is very real. It just takes other forms and tends to be run by the, the law enforcement authorities, not uh, some algorithm. What I'd seen with that system, it, it, it shocked me that they would be able with a population as large as China's, even with a national ID system, to be able from a moving image taken off at night of people crossing a street that they could identify who it was. And I was basically told that what they do is they, they, they cheat in the way of training algorithms. When they get the, a positive, they then send it to human verifiers. And the verifiers confirm or deny if they can before this is going. So it's hardly real time. Now, of course, that does train the algorithm, right? Because they may get this added input from the humans that they can then incorporate. Again, this is one of those situations where I put it more into the show attitude. China, at this point, would like people to believe they can't get away with breaking laws. I mean, I suppose every government would like people to not want to break laws. And that's the ultimate goal in China as well. And that's where we get some of this moral education and legal education stuff. But the immediate short-term goal is to make people think surveillance is ubiquitous. You can't get away with it. My feeling is the Shenzhou was sort of a publicity stunt in that regard. I completely agree with Jeremy on all those points. I mean, my own view of the social credit system was largely shaped by Jeremy's article on China Law Translate. I would highly recommend everyone to read China Through a Glass Darkly. I think it was one of the first things I read on the social credit system that helped me digest it and grapple with it outside of what was in the media. I think the the one thing that I'll add on the tech side and in terms of how these systems actually function in terms of the technology that's been incorporated, I think most people who study these systems in depth and have actually looked into that black box of how these systems work is that these references to implementing big data and AI into the credit system are largely vague and aspirational. And that sort of the implementation of these technologies has been limited and fragmented to date. That could definitely change in the future. And and there is a push to incorporate more of these technologies, but we can only kind of analyze what we see and has happened on the ground empirically. So that's sort of the current state of play with regard to AI actually being incorporated into these social credit systems. And beyond the social credit system, even uh, in in all China's laws, and I spend a lot of time translating and and reviewing various laws in, in different disciplines in China, they always throw in this sort of buzzword soup. This, this idea that everyone should be thinking about applications of food technology. So there'll usually be sort of a throwaway clause. It's like, as possible, incorporate big data technology, artificial intelligence, blockchain. Um, and they, you know, they throw in all these things that, that the casual reader might not even know what means. Perhaps the legislator doesn't know what means. But the <laughs> idea is technology is going to be important for all the reasons Jeff talked about in in, in legitimacy and bringing China into a new era. And they want everyone thinking about how this can be used and innovating with it. So we will see, you know, it's not to say it's meaningless because it is sort of a mandate to be using new technologies and permission to innovate. But the idea that that kind of a throwaway clause refers to a specific use of technology That's just not the way Chinese law works. Yeah, well, Jeremy, that's a really interesting point because I think we have in our minds this idea of China being hyper-technical, hyper 
scientific, hyper-effective in its surveillance. But what we see across the world is that politicians just don't really understand tech and science uh, in, the, in the US, in the UK. And actually, I can imagine Chinese lawmakers just kind of throwing in these buzzwords that they've got from uh, a Google, well, not a Google search, a Baidu search, just to make it seem like they know what they're talking about. And on social credit as well, yes, you know, if you talk to anyone in China, People don't know what social credit is. People don't have a social credit score. A lot of that has been misreported. And, you know, perhaps that's another episode just to debunk that entire scheme on Chinese whispers. For now, though, Jeremy, you mentioned surveillance actually happening in China. And one place we do hear a lot about, as well as social credit, is in Xinjiang, which is the region where the Uyghur minority are the majority in China, in the west of China. Can you talk a little bit about what sort of surveillance we know is going on in that region? Yeah, I, I haven't been to Xinjiang in, in over a decade, but all reports, and there's been some great, very brave reporting by foreign and local newspapers even, shows that surveillance is really ubiquitous there. I, I like to point out, though, that I think the issue of Xinjiang is not ultimately a technological one. Uh, I think it's a very old story of ethnic prejudice and forced assimilation. And I think the technology is a new angle. And it's being used in new ways that may or may not ultimately be applied in other situations against other kinds of lawbreakers. But I think approaching Xinjiang's situation as a technological phenomena is probably in error. Technology is a tool, right? So yes, some technologies do have values embedded within them. But I, I think very much like technologies become deployed and used in the surrounding context. So, so the surrounding context of, you know, China's brutal repression of Uyghurs in Xinjiang is what is shaping how the technology is operating in this area, not the other way around. That being said, I mean, I think, as Jeremy alluded to, it's the surveillance apparatus in Xinjiang is uh, definitely growing. And um, just I've done just a few translations, but in my translations of the, the role, for example, played by a key security integrator company that's like based in Urumqi uh, called Leon Technology. Mm. And the time that I did the translation, I think this is also a little bit outdated, like a year and a half ago, it was responsible for about half of the safe city projects in Urumqi. And it also like, it was also doing other surveillance work, right? So it's not just Xinjiang uh, surveillance of the Muslim population, but they also did work maintaining uh, surveillance of Xinjiang's border with neighboring countries. And in the documents and in these articles, these security systems tech, uh, companies like Leon, they say to truly integrate the security apparatus, this process lacks a very important technology, facial recognition. And, and, they, and it says that this region needs AI and facial recognition to free up police forces and manpower without facial recognition there needs to be like 200 plus workers and police officers monitoring screens all day in Urumqi with it presumably they're free to like go and that that labor force is freed up to do other things like maybe expand the security and surveillance state so that's not a ground level view this is just me on the outside looking in looking at what these security systems integrators are saying they want and they say they wanted kind of, they didn't have this type of facial recognition technology. So guess what? They had a joint venture with SenseTime, which is probably one of the top facial recognition startups in the world, a Chinese facial recognition startup. Now, since then, 
sense time has divested from that joint venture with Leon, but but I think it speaks to how these security systems companies on the ground are collaborating with the Chinese companies with the more adept facial recognition capabilities. Mm. We hear a lot about the pitfalls of facial recognition when it comes to recognizing different ethnicities. For example, in the West, you know, we've had, you know, headlines of racist AI and that sort of stuff because of the inputs. Jeff, correct me if I'm wrong. The inputs, you know, these coders put in are largely ethnically dominant by white people, for example, in the West. And so it has more of a problem identifying black people or or differentiating them. That must be a similar problem in somewhere like Xinjiang, where the uh, Uyghurs and the other ethnic minorities come from more of a Central Asian ethnicity than the Han Chinese. Right. So there are two issues to unpack here. The first is what you mentioned, just the accuracy of identification uh, being less robust with respect to darker shaded faces. So there's actually been open trials of some Chinese facial recognition technologies on different data sets that are meant to evaluate their performance uh, with respect to darker shades of faces. Uh, For example, I think the Gender Shades Project at MIT evaluated Face++ algorithm, which is the algorithm of Megvi, kind of the number two to sense time in China's facial recognition startups. And they did find that Face++ and Microsoft's algorithm, and I think one other uh, US company's algorithm, all performed less well on uh, darker shaded faces. Uh, The second thing to unpack here too, though, is going back to what we're talking about when, if you're trying to make predictions based off of facial data, there, there might be embedded bias within using facial data to make predictions that, for example, you know, based off of other things that are already correlated to race. Yeah. And and that speaks to your question about like how, if the training data itself is racist than the outcome of using facial recognition to predict these other effects of perhaps whether this person is trustworthy or whether this person presents a danger to society. If you're using those sort of applications and connecting it to facial data, that brings a whole nother host of potential inaccuracies. Mm. And Jeff, part of your research is also looking at you know, China AI more broadly and the rest of the world. I wonder, for us in the West, what should the attitude be to China's development of its AI and surveillance tech, especially when it comes to exporting these? Because you mentioned SenseTime, uh, there are also other companies like Hikvision, for example, that have been blacklisted by the US for their exports to less than savory countries around the world. What should the West do? And is, is China racing ahead on this front? Right. So uh, first, just as a point of clarification, the blacklisting was for these companies' involvement in human rights abuses in Xinjiang, not to the export of surveillance. But yes, there have been claims that that China is exporting its surveillance model to other countries. I think, I'm curious what Jeremy thinks about this, but I think the first thing I'll say on this is actually going back to this point about society shaping technology or technology shaping society. And I think in this case, if the idea is that exporting a surveillance system will turn a country more authoritarian, I think there has to be a high threshold for making that case. And there has to be a lot of evidence to be able to say that because so many other factors are going to affect a country's Mm -hmm. regime type and sort of how that technology gets deployed is also going to be shaped by that existing context already. So a lot of the cases in which you see exporting surveillance happen, like 
facial recognition deals between Chinese companies and the Zimbabwe government, for instance. That export of surveillance is going to a context where surveillance is already cultivated or where surveillance is already going mm. to be able to be more likely to find a home. But it does make it much more effective. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think, again, this we have a China phenomena, yes, but we also have a global phenomena of suddenly cameras and memory being much cheaper and more widely available than they have been in the past. You know, again, going to the old uh, security and privacy balance, there's no question that if every aspect of my life was surveilled, if you could access my browser history, if you could look at how I spent every minute of my day, my behavior would probably change. And it could be shaped to fit certain norms. And we're dealing with that globally. At what level do we think that's acceptable modeling of behavior, like stopping crime, versus intrusive, like monitoring your employees? And one of the reasons that I enjoy looking at Chinese society as well as Chinese law is it does make me then look back at what's happening in my country uh, to understand how these issues are playing out differently. And, you know, one of the things when I, uh, like I said, I normally live in China. And one of the things that amazed me was the tracking of delivery drivers for the enormous uh, food delivery service system that they have there, where I could get real-time positioning on my driver. And it's great as a consumer. I love seeing it. I love calling him up and being like, you took a wrong turn. But the truth is, if I were him, it's pretty awful. And I was surprised to see things like that technology being used to monitor law and maintenance companies in the U.S., seeing how long their law and maintenance employees were parked at a certain lawn versus what they were billing. Mm -hmm. um, you, you know, so or in office settings, tracking how long certain programs are open, whether you're visiting social media sites. You know, we, this, this technology is new and we're all starting to learn how to draw the balance between acceptable privacy. And different countries are of course gonna draw it differently based on their goals and their government models. And China, we know which way they're gonna balance. You know, you know I think our bias there that they get, are gonna go for security stability is correct but watching it emerge and, and watching the fight here. I always tell people, they ask me, how sh what should they read to understand technology in China? And I say, you should read the US Electronic Frontier Foundation to see what they're fighting against in the US because it's the same things that will be happening in China, just you won't be able to go to court as easily to try and change it. Well, actually, that leads me on very nicely to my final question, Jeremy, which is that what can ordinary Chinese people do? I mean, let's just limit it to facial recognition for now rather than surveillance in general. But what can they do to do this? Because you mentioned what are equivalent in the West. And actually, in the West, is a lot of the time, it's these big tech companies that are doing things like this or, or everyday companies like Amazon. And as consumers, we don't really have that much option. You know, you either use the service as they give it to you or you don't so you either surveilled with your data given out or or you don't use the service at all so in some ways we are quite powerless in the west when it comes to the private sector but what can the chinese do when it comes to the government well and and the private sector in china jeremy would you want to go first well the, they are very different questions of course versus the government versus the private sector as we've been saying versus the private sector this these are the issues that the laws are and regulations are trying to address they are very much working on a consent model. And like you were saying, 
you don't often have much choice. So yes, you hit the okay to put cookies on my machine, uh, you know, but, but you're not really doing informed consent. But the Chinese law is going a little bit beyond that. And it's saying that you can only ask for that consent in certain situations when it's necessary. And for sensitive personal information, which includes facial recognition, it has to be for a specific purpose and the least restrictive method available. Biometric data is being classified for higher protection, and that includes facial recognition. Um, so citizens will be somewhat empowered. But I think the most important thing is for people to be vocal about what they want. Uh, you know, the government in China is responsive to public opinion. There are obviously lines where that is going to, you know, not go very far. But but in terms of disputes between corporations and citizens and citizens and the other citizens, understanding what the public wants and ex expects is is going to be reflected in some of these laws. Those standards that you mentioned on data security for facial recognition are currently available for public comment. Anyone, including non-citizens, can submit comments on them. Uh, I often do, uh, usually about the drafting. That's what we'd see if you see your web browser history. Yes, that, that is what you would see. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and I assure you, what one aspect of China's surveillance system the government does is they do require real name registration for almost everything. So there is no uh, browser history privacy uh, against the government there. But yes, you know, people making their opinions heard and the government likes to say it will regulate itself in terms of government powers. And uh, as someone who has worked in the U.S. on issues such as police abuse of authority, self-regulation isn't quite enough uh, to put uh, uh, the public's concerns to rest. Well, to say the least, <laughs> Jeff, what do you think? Yeah, I would. I would actually reverse the question because you've asked us what can Chinese consumers do to express their views on facial recognition. And I would ask, are we, do we even know, are we looking for what Chinese consumers are doing? Are we actually actively seeking out kind of any counter narratives to the idea that there's just no space for critical dissent in China on the behalf of people who might have like fears, worries that are similar to us in the U.S.? Now, of course, there are differences, as Jeremy mentioned, and there's not as much of a robust civil society in China. But just in facial recognition space, there is some like local level pushback on facial recognition. So, for example, in December 2020, the Tianjin Municipal Social Credit Regulations were voted on. And for the first time in China, the collection of facial recognition information was publicly prohibited through those regulations. Um, and after that, kind of different neighborhood committees in Tianjin, ask residents to decide for themselves whether to continue using facial recognition to enter or exit these residences. And in December that year, 2020, kind of different neighborhoods. So for example, the Wenhua Village neighborhood, nearly 50% of households um, said they would not use the facial recognition access control system. So are we looking for cases like these? Are we mm -hmm. translating, reading, and actually seeing if there's backlash and what voices are occurring out of China? I think that's a really important starting point. Well, that's a good note to end on. Jeffrey Ding and Jeremy Dahm, thank you so much for joining. And I would highly recommend uh, both of their work. So you can go check out Jeremy's uh, China Law Translate blog. And you should also check out Jeff's China AI newsletter, which will keep you up to date on everything to do with China and the budding AI industry. 
Jeff and Jeremy, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for listening to this episode of Chinese Whispers. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're listening to this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel, remember that Chinese Whispers has its own channel as well. If you just search Chinese Whispers wherever you get your podcast from, you will always get the latest episode first there. If you have any feedback, positive or negative, but preferably constructive, please do email me at podcast at spectator.co.uk. And I'd also love it if you left a review or told your family and friends about the podcast. It's the way to help us grow. So thanks so much for listening and join us again next time. Bye.